song. And in fact, all of these songs have been very uplifting to our heart, mindful certainly in every case about the great teaching of the gospel and the opportunity that's ours to be a faithful servant of the Lord. We're so thankful that we've each been able to come out and gather as we are tonight, and I hope that you'll be turning to the book of Revelation. We'll continue our series of studies. This is already lesson number five in our series of studies on the Revelation. And as we, again, are nearly the beginning of the book still, chapters 2 and 3 will be our particular emphasis and the place for our time together and study at least tonight. As you turn to Revelation chapter 2, let me use an introductory slide as a little bit of an introduction, at least in the following way. You may notice on this next slide that to some extent, as you and I reflect upon the Revelation, it continues to be the grand finale. Quite often, those who put forward particular performances or they put forward particular opportunities of service to others, they save the best till last. They wait until the final set of moments and do that which is the full culmination of and the greatest moment of summary of that which they've done. If you've ever been to a fireworks display on the 4th of July, it's not unusual for there to be a grand finale, a last couple of moments wherein the largest number of fireworks per unit time are set off, and a time that's very culminating. Could I remind each of us there's a sense in which the revelation is the grand finale. It culminates the hope contained in the books that precede it, and it highlights the great message of God for those that are the faithful. It is from that perspective that I would offer you one final thought on that slide that's now before you. Last Sunday evening, we at least looked at chapter 1 as a prologue in the sense that it set forward a number of ideas that were going to reappear. And many of those will now appear in somewhat more detail in these seven letters to the churches. And at the same time, we did notice the letter to the church at Ephesus. And so we'll not revisit that one tonight. But might I say in that light that we learned that these letters were brief, that there were some things in common. They offered commendation when that was in order. They offered reproof when that was in order. It asserted the fact that I know thy works. And it also asserted the fact that he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And with that message to the church at Ephesus, it prepares us for what shall come next on our slide tonight, which will be that letter to the church at Smyrna. So in chapter number 2, let me direct your attention, if I could, to verses 8 and following. Here's a message that Jesus the Christ composed and directed to the church at Smyrna. On the slide, I'll begin in an extremely brief way by pointing out at least a matter of his history or geography, as the case may be, and at least that information can be of some value to us. The city of Smyrna was a seaport town. It was located about 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus, and it was a place known in the ancient time for its beauty. That is to say, the area surrounding it was a noteworthy example of pristine presentation of beauty and desire, and so lots of people had an interest in that region of Smyrna. But with that said, may I point out that religiously speaking, the Roman Caesars of Hadrian and Tiberius both awarded Smyrna a very prized place of being the, the center place of an imperial temple. 
Now, you might recall the Roman Empire had its own measure of religion. There was, in essence, a state religion, and you worship the Caesar. So they erected a temple for that purpose here at Smyrna. What that would indicate is that there was obviously a bit of tension and a bit of directness relative to decisions that the individuals of that place would have to make. Having made those observations, could I direct you to a few of the statements that Jesus made to that congregation? It was to them in verse number 8 that Jesus identified himself this way. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And so the Lord immediately made reference to himself, I was dead, I'm now alive. And not only that, I'm the first and the last. Could you and I remember that was a part, a critical part, of the efforts of Revelation chapter 1. In fact, in Revelation 18, the Lord there was identified as the one having the keys of hell and of death. And in so doing, he himself asserted then that he was alive and then dead and then alive evermore. That's exactly the same language used here. So one more time, the Lord refers back to the prologue and uses it as a stepping stone to highlight some critical matter of importance in terms of these individual letters. On the slide, I've also pointed out to you that as usual, the Lord offered commendation when that was in order. What did He commend the Smyrna church for? Notice with me verse number 9. I know thy works and tribulation, and poverty, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. They were commended in light of the difficulties they were experiencing, and yet the faithfulness that nonetheless was theirs. You'll notice that mention was made of poverty. They knew what it was like to be without some physical blessings. They had opposed those that were false. May I use that as an opportunity to encourage each of us. It's still needful to persevere even in times of material challenge. And it's still needful, you see, for you and I to be mindful of those that are false, to identify them in the words of Romans 16, verse 17, to mark them and to avoid them. Those matters are, you see, just as needful for us as they were for the church at Smyrna. But as you also notice on that slide, we get excited about this church for this reason. As I've already noted, the Lord rebuked when needed. He did not rebuke this church. He had nothing overtly negative to say. May I ask that each of us think with care about that same matter ourselves. Interesting it is on that slide. He did, it, he did exhort them in light of what they were about to experience. He pointed out that there was a coming extreme persecution. Notice it had not started yet, but when it came and when it developed, it was going to be severe, severer than that which they had known to this point. Jesus encouraged them, even when that comes, to be faithful unto death. Verse number 10. That's often the main thing you and I remember about the letter to the church at Smyrna. Be thou faithful unto death and I'll give thee a crown of life. You see, they were encouraged to be faithful no matter what. It might be in that connection that the next observation to be seen would be this one. On the slide, can I point out that there did come a time from the matter of history when there was an extreme persecution. It would occur in the days of Hadrian. 
It was going to surround the matter of what was taught and demanded at, at, at those imperial temples. And this church was going to be right in the middle of it. Oh, how difficult it was going to be. Jesus forewarned them what was coming. This is one of the instances when Jesus directly said, This is coming. You and I need to take note. The Lord, in many cases, has warned us about what's going to transpire. Our faithfulness must be as certain as what theirs was to be. In John 15, 19, Jesus Himself had said, The world has hated me, and it will hate you too. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10, and 10 through 12, Jesus in the Beatitudes pointed out, Blessed are they that remain faithful during the matter of persecution, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One last thing about that slide would be this one, that this church was promised that they would receive the crown of life if they remained faithful, and thus they would not be those hurt by the second death. I thought that at this point we might notice a little map, a blown-up one relative to some of those we've seen earlier, but one which may have words easy enough to read. Can I point out that that city you and I noticed last time is again the city of Ephesus, and you might wish to take note that the island on which John was exiled was this island of Patmos, somewhat off the coast of, of Asia Minor. Having now noticed Ephesus, you'll notice to the north is Smyrna, this church which you and I are just now describing. May I point out to you that there was a little inlet off the Aegean Sea that really made Smyrna a seaport town. And again, the way that the hills rolled around it was known for its beauty. And there were many who were drawn to that place, but it was a place where one of those imperial temples was located, and what a moment of difficulty that would bring when the earnestness of the Roman decisions came to pass. When you arrive at verse number 11, you find the final statement to the church at Smyrna. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, and he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. The New Testament, you see, describes... Not just one death, but more than one. There's a second death. And this book, in fact, casts a great spotlight upon it, and it highlights that this second death, as we shall see when we get to Revelation 20, is that very matter of being eternally separated from the God of heaven. You'll notice that John then wrote to this church, Those that remain faithful till death, they'll receive, again, access to that tree of life, the promise connected to it, and they will not be heard of the second death. Oh, how much hope that has been in the lives of Christians ever since it was written. It's still a great matter of thought for you and me today. What about the third of the letters? This one to the church at Pergamos. In fact, as you'll notice on that slide rather near the top, in most cases, the King James Version is a bit of the exception here. It's more often called Pergamum. P-E-R-G-A-M-U-M. -E and so if your Bible has it Pergamum, that's the same as Pergamus. First of all, a little bit of history and geography about the location wherein the church at Pergamus was, just so that we can turn back so easily to it. You'll notice it's the furthest one north among the seven churches of Asia. Notice it fell somewhat northward of Smyrna, almost directly due north, in fact. And it was to that congregation. It was not a seaport town. It was a little distance inland. But that's going to suggest some things that are going to appear on this next slide. 
Pergamos was situated about 50 miles north of Smyrna. It was a very important city in the days of the ancient Roman Empire. It was renowned for a library that was located there. Not only that, it was known for a healing complex. It has a notable doctor's office, if you please. And their specialty was this. There were those that came for healing, and it had to do with particular ailments connected to some of these other things known in that region that we'll see shortly, a little bit later in the lesson tonight. But to that healing complex could I point out this. They too had an imperial temple. This one was brought to bear in the days of Augustus, Augustus Caesar. That would mean it was a little bit older than those in the days of Hadrian. With that in mind, notice how Jesus addressed them. The church at Pergamos had these words addressed to them, beginning in verse number 13. I'll begin reading in verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. In other words, one more time, the Lord makes a reference to a two-edged sword. I hope that again reminds all of us about Revelation 1 verse 16. One of the comments made in the prologue was the one possessive of this dual-edged sword. Jesus then stated that he had it. It appeared out of the words of his mouth, and it was here to the church at Pergamos that the Lord referred to it again. As we mention in terms of that prologue, that continues to be springboards from which the individual seven letters could so readily be presented. And it is with that in mind that verse 13 begins like this, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. I think you and I have already noted that matters at Smyrna were challenging enough. They were about to be cast into prison for a period of time. There was going to be a challenging set of difficulties. And now to this church, it's even worse. Satan's got a seat right where you are. The devil has a stronghold there. He has a great influence there. I know all of us could say the devil's influence is rather noteworthy, it seems, in all places on earth. But there was something about Pergamum. You may notice that in many ways it gets this bad. Verse 13, Thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied by faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Two times, Satan's seat and Satan dwells there. The city of Pergamos was in fact a stronghold of the influence of the evil one. So strong was that influence that you'll notice what happened to Antipas. You and I aren't given a lot of information in the New Testament about Antipas. But what we have in this verse is not only very nobly encouraging, but it is a fine reminder of what can come to pass for those that are Christians. Did you note what the New Testament called him? A martyr. He died because of his faith. The Roman Empire, the Roman authorities came and they took his life simply because he would not bow down to the matters demanded of him by Rome. He was a faithful martyr. As you can begin to see, these seven churches were dwelling at a time and in a place wherein the forces of civil government in terms of meddling in religion had become substantial and were drawing them to a matter of great personal choice. 
Think about what Antip what decision Antipas might have had to make. Since the Bible doesn't say this is only a descriptive matter on my part, there may well have come a time when some Roman officials directly confronted Antipas and said, you bow down to the Caesar or I'm going to kill you. And they had the authority of the Roman Caesar to do it. And there he was instantly in the matter of making a decision. Maybe his wife and children stood over to the side and he had to decide, do I, in fact, deny the Lord so I can continue to live on earth? Or am I going to be faithful to God despite the fact my family is going to see me put to death? Now that is a decision. For those that are faithful to the Lord, it isn't a hard one. But doesn't it cost one's mind as to the demand it makes? Antipas may have found himself in that predicament. You'll notice he is called a faithful martyr. It's not that his life was taken under the duress of his unfaithfulness. He was faithful. As you come to then verse number 14, you notice some more things that were stated about the church at Pergamos. First of all, I have a few things against thee. Just as had been the case earlier, they were commended in light of, verse number 13, they had held the Lord's name, at least in the duress that has been faced to that point. There were some there that were faithful. But verse 14 is quick to mention some rebuke. I have a few things against thee. It wasn't just one. There were a few of these things the Lord was about to name. And here we go with the first one. Thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. There were some in the church at Pergamos that had given themselves over to the same kind of thing Balaam had followed back in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24. Now in our study of the book of Numbers, we found that the donkey talked to him and in fact... You may recall that Balaam had struck the donkey more than once because the donkey didn't go where Balaam wanted it to go. And finally the donkey said, Can't you see or don't you realize, if I may paraphrase? The thought is, there was an angel standing in the way and the donkey could see it and Balaam didn't. And had Balaam recognized the point in the matter, he would have been thankful to the donkey for stepping out of the way because the angel would have taken Balaam's life. But the fact is, Balaam was interested in money. He was interested in what his pocket could, in fact, appreciate relative to what Balak had to offer him as he would curse Israel. And Balaam was desirous of bringing about that thing. And you see, despite what God said, he wanted that stuff too much. You'll notice that there were some in the church at Pergamos like that. They were willing to sacrifice faithfulness to the Lord due to their pocketbook or due to other influence of worldliness. To that might we add verse number 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You and I might learn several lessons about that. First, there are some doctrines that the Lord hates. There are some things that men teach that Jesus hates. There are some things that men endorse that Jesus despises. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was one of them. You and I might be quick to ask, what did the Nicolaitans teach? What kinds of things did they set before the people? And note, there were some following it. 
The New Testament does not come out and tell us in great detail what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. It would seem fairly strong and fairly safe to say that Revelation chapter 2 gives us enough information that we can identify what it was. It was a kind of religion and a kind of belief that gave emphasis to what was of the body, that which was of a sensual pursuit. There were no moral laws to the Nicolaitans. Do whatever you like, give some mouth service to God, and that'll be good enough. There were no laws, if you please, especially no moral ones to the Nicolaitans. This chapter leads us to make conclusion about the matters connected to that. And so you'll notice Jesus said, I hate that. There are moral regulations and laws for those that serve the Lord. There are some things that you and I cannot do and please Him. There are certain ways of behaving in life that we cannot do and yet be pleasing to Him. The Nicolaitans would have disagreed. It might be in that connection. You and I can then observe the following in the verses that follow. What did Jesus say to that church? Could I invite you to note verse 16? Repent, or else I will come again unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. The same message that the Lord shared with that church at Pergamos. It's a uniform lesson of the New Testament. You have to repent of this. Might you and I take note, the Lord didn't change His mind and say, well, simply because so many are endorsing this, I guess I will tolerate it. The Lord did not respond that way. He said, you've got to repent. And if you don't, I'm going to come and fight against you, in the words of verse 16, with the sword of my mouth. You and I know that any fight with the Lord is going to be a loss. He will always be victorious. And to the church at, 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 at Pergamos, those kinds of matters allow us to close that slide then and perhaps finish it like this. The exhortation to repent was certainly followed by that beautiful matter of a promise stated in the words of verse number 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches and to him that overcometh. There's our key word of the book. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and, the st and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. You can imagine a white rock, a white stone indicative of being owned by the Lord, and one in which this name was written that identified him to be connected uniquely with the God of heaven. As you close that verse, it brings us to the church. That's the next one on our list. The third congregation, then, of our study tonight. As I transition the slide to it, could we thus appreciate in an easy way the following? You and I know that Satan's seat was at Pergamos. It was a place of great turmoil in light of what Satan wanted men to follow, but yet the nature of service to the Lord was much more direct. I hope you and I are reminded that a simple devotion to God, a life that is etched in that simplicity, will be a life that is a life of sweet blessedness in the eyes of God. What about the church at Thyatira? Many of the verses that follow, in fact, as you'll notice, verses 18 to 29, 
the rest of this chapter is a centerpiece in light of the Lord's direction and message to the church at Thyatira. As you think back to that map a moment ago, remember Thyatira was somewhat further south than Pergamos. As far as a few comments, I have listed these. It was located about 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was known for its strong textile industry. I say that among other reasons because of Acts chapter 16, verse number 14. Do you remember that when the gospel first came to Europe? In the city of Philippi, there was a citizen there, a woman whose name was Lydia. You might recall that she was favorably disposed to the preaching of Paul, but something was said about her. She was a seller of purple from Thyatira. Her hometown was the city of Thyatira, known as a very centerpiece, a headquarters for the selling of purple. On the slide that's before you, I made mention of that based on that passage and some of the matters that are presented to us here. As far as what the Lord had to say to them, would you notice with me verse number 18? These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And immediately that takes us back to the prologue. Jesus was identified that way in Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. And now he borrows that idea and uses it to describe himself in the words he's directing now to the church at Thyatira. You can imagine how helpful and how prompting that would be, especially in light of these comments that are to follow. First, the Lord commended them for that which was, of course, reasonable. Verse number 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Doesn't that sound grand? Doesn't that sound terrific? Here the Lord expressed a commendation to the church at Thyatira, and to them He said, I know your love, I know your works, I know your service, I know your faith, I know your patience, and I know that you have grown in the light of those matters since the issue at the beginning. Now that really sounds good. Could I ask us all, though, to notice that there was rebuke also when that was in order. Do not these letters remind us then of this truth? When a congregation perhaps chooses the way that's wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean that every individual in that congregation has given his or her approval to that. There could still be those faithful to the Lord in the midst of others who are not. That can be. That was true at Pergamos. It's now true at Thyatira. It will be true at Sardis. You and I need to keep that in mind. As we think about the kind of choices a church might make, the leadership, the eldership, for example, at a congregation might move that church in a way that is not wholesome and not in consistent direction in the New Testament. But it doesn't mean that every individual in that church has approved of that way in that pursuit. You'll notice here, we now need to say this, for what did the Lord rebuke them? Verse number, verse number 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, 
to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. In the church at Thyatira, there was a very influential woman. I'm persuaded that Jezebel was not literally her name. Whatever her name was, she behaved like a Jezebel, just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Ahab's wife Jezebel, she motivated the people to turn their back upon God. She encouraged them to serve Baal. She erected the places of worship to Baal. And she, in fact, opposed that which was true. There was a woman, influential in character, in the church at Thyatira, and she did something like that. Notice she called herself a prophetess. She had taken upon herself a position of leadership in that church, and she encouraged the people in light of fornication. And not only that, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, there was a strong warning given about eating things, eating meats offered to idols. And here was a woman encouraging that. And in so doing, there were people in that church that were falling prey to her false teaching and to her false insistence. You'll notice one other thing in verse number 21. Jesus said, I gave her space to repent. I gave her time and opportunity to come to the Lord. And she didn't do it. May I say there's a parallel of that to every person. I gave them time to repent. I gave them opportunity, and yet they were left to their own choice. God didn't make them. You and I need to realize today that, again, the Lord calls. He calls in the words of the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. And He lets each person make his or her own decision. As far as this matter of Jezebel, you'll notice what else is asserted in verse number 22. I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her. Not only her influence, but those who chose to follow. They were going to meet the judgment which God would bring upon them. And that judgment would lead me to state the same thing in verse number 22. Except they repent of their deeds. Oh, how they needed to repent. It might well be that verse number 23 and following, God says, I'm going to bring a great sentence upon them that hold to this doctrine and this teaching of Jezebel. As you close that slide with me, isn't it a strong message and a strong matter for you and me to notice there was a failure in leadership of the church at Thyatira. Men who were faithful to the Lord apparently did not stand strong enough and allowed this Jezebel to ultimately wreak her havoc among that church and lead precious souls astray. That again is something to consider, isn't it? The matter connected to what she called herself a prophetess. Notice it doesn't say she really was a prophetess. She referred to herself that way. You and I can conclude she was a liar. She was one who encouraged eating meat sacrificed to idols. She was one who encouraged the sensual side of life in relation to fornication. No doubt connected in part to some of what took place at the temple that was in Thyatira. As you close that slide with me, doesn't it at least lead us to a few closing thoughts about that congregation? 
in one final set of words, Jesus encouraged them to hold fast and to overcome. There's our key word again, to overcome. And the promise given to them in verses 27 and following is that they would receive the morning star. And when you and I think about the star, our mind races to Revelation 1 verse 20 as well as the penetrating thought of Jude verse number 13. All of it reminds us that church had its problems, but they were admonished, the nucleus of faithful ones still there, to hold on to their faith. And those that were not were encouraged to repent. And that sentence in parallel is what you and I encourage, certainly of one, one another today. What about that church at Sardis? The next of our congregations, and this one occurs in the opening verses of Revelation 3. As you note, the first few verses of Revelation 3, we bring ourselves to note the following. First, a few comments about the region where Sardis was and the nature of the forces which certainly were very difficult for them to note. The city of Sardis was a chief city of the Roman Empire. It was situated approximately 35 miles south of the city of Thyatira. It was a district and was really regarded as a capital of that district in the Roman Empire. As far as their religious life, that area was known for its worship of Artemis, that very deity that the Bible calls Diana. Now you and I remember that Ephesus was really the centerpiece, but here was perhaps city number two in the interest of the worship of Diana. There was also an imperial temple located here. Needless to say, the church at Sardis was in the midst again of a situation of great opposition to truth. As always, Jesus had some things to say to them. And first, He began like this, Revelation 3, verse 1. These things saith He that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, I know thy works, and that thou hast a name, but thou livest, and art dead. And that's an almost thunderous beginning. I know the name which you proclaim, the name which you acclaim, but you are dead. And with that thought in mind, the Lord races to mention to them some of the following ideas. He first of all mentioned Himself as being the same one who was of the seven spirits. But that again was a part of the prologue in Revelation 1 verses 4 and following. And highlighted again in Revelation 1, verse 16. It might be in that light that we could quickly say, There were a few in Sardis that had not defiled their garments. I don't know how many members there were of the church at Sardis. The text doesn't say. But we do know that the Lord used the word few to describe some that were faithful. Don't know how many few of the number would have been. Maybe it was only a handful. However many there were, aren't we thankful there were at least a few? Today again, might we comment in the same way we did about the church at Thyatira, though a church might be known for its poor choices and what their leadership follows, it still may be true that there are some there who do not support that falsehood and who are not endorsing it. Certainly those people would have to think carefully about their membership at these places. But you and I might remember, in that day and time, in most cases there's only one congregation in a given city. 
the church hadn't grown yet to where there were multiple congregations of the Lord's church at a given place. And so maybe those that were faithful to the Lord in Sardis, their only choice would have been to begin a new congregation. And maybe they were not in a position to do that due to funding, due to other matters in life or otherwise. But there were some still faithful at Sardis. That word few would seemingly suggest the majority were not. A much larger number had given themselves over to this. They were dead. You and I know that death doesn't mean physical death in this case. They were spiritually dead. They had chosen a walk in life that though at one time they were faithful, they no longer were. And now they were dead spiritually. Dead in trespasses and sins in the words of Ephesians 2 verse 1. And their iniquities had separated from God in light of them. And it was a very tragic situation. You'll notice on that slide, I've invited you to observe this. It says in verses 3 and following, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. You see, they had a name that maybe was known in terms of where they met. But what went on in the lives of them? They were dead. That's certainly a prompting verse for each of us to consider. Are you and I passionate about the Lord? Or do we just go through the motions in light of some kind of service on Sundays and Wednesdays? That's just the beginning of our service. Those things are, of course, elementary and required, but our connection to God must be much deeper than that. Our connection to the Lord must be more committed than that. Here was a congregation at Sardis. They had a name that they were acclaiming, but they were dead. I hope you and I never are in that category. May our life be a life of rich passion for the Lord, using the word zeal as Paul did in Titus 2 verse 14. And echoed again in Titus 3, verse 14, a person zealous for the Lord. May that be descriptive of you and of me. As you close that particular slide with me, isn't it interesting to observe that our spiritual life certainly demands more than just what is on the surface of a name only. The name Christian should mean a great deal. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, to borrow the words of Acts eleven twenty six. And you and I are taught in 1 Peter 4.16 that even under the matter of suffering for the cause of Christ, the name Christian should be the reason for which we do it. Amazing, isn't it, then, that the closing thoughts about that church in Sardis might well bring us to note this. They were exhorted to watch. They were exhorted to strengthen what remained. And they were exhorted, you see, to remember. Can I suggest to each of us that our memory can be one of the grandest of blessings? You remember what it was like when you were faithful. Remember what it's like to enjoy fellowship with blessed brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember what it was like to be in a position of connection to God. Sometimes when you and I remember things like that and then the choices of life have taken us from it, that could be a motivation to want to go back to the life of faith that we once had known. The final statement on that slide is this one. Notice what the promise was that was given to them. 
Verse number 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Among those comments, couldn't we note this? I suppose as you and I think about the book of life and the grandeur of that book, and we are taught, of course, in the Word of God that those that obey the Lord in the matter of baptism and those that live, they have their names in that book. It really is a book of life. But did you notice from this text to the church at Sardis, there is something to be noted. Names can be taken out of that book. Jesus expressly told the church at Sardis that I'll take out the names that are in that book if they at least continue in unfaithfulness, if they continue to dwell in a way that is opposed to the truth. It might be in that connection, in that light. Having finished that set of discussions to the church at Sardis, it might be that we will reserve Philadelphia and we'll reserve Laodicea for our service next Sunday night. Because of the two that we've seen in light of them, they will be in many ways polar opposites. We will learn much about the church at Philadelphia, and we'll learn some very different things about the church at Laodicea. But as we consider all of them next Sunday night, it will provide us with a way to think again about what would the Lord say if He addressed the Pippin Church of Christ? What if He penned a letter and sent it to this church that was to be read in public at one of our assemblies. For what would He commend us? For what would He rebuke us? That is something to seriously consider. Is it true that there might be a few here who are faithful, but again, a larger number of others who've lost their zeal for the Lord? Who are going through the motions of some kind of religion and they have only a name, but yet they're dead? Oh, if that's you or me. We need to make some changes at once. We need to come to the Lord at once, and just as He told these churches, repent, or else I'll come and fight against thee with the sword of my mouth. And that's a battle you and I shall never win. One by one, these churches tonight that we've considered, first, the church at Smyrna, be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. And the church at Pergamos, where Satan's seat was, they had some things that were not good. They held the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam, and you've got to repent to the church at Thyatira. There was a Jezebel among them, and she was teaching things that were leading precious souls astray and aside from the Lord, and they had to get things right. The church at Sardis, that church, you and I have noted lastly today, a congregation that had a name, but they were dead. It was a congregation that needed to repent. There were souls there that were faithful, but a larger number of others that were unfaithful, and they needed to overcome. And the key word of the book is that very word, overcome. If you and I tonight are in position that we have already overcome by being associated to the Lord by faithful obedience, we need to continue that. But if someone in this assembly at one time had overcome, but as of tonight... You have been overcome by the devil. It's time to, in fact, do just as Jesus did and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. 
Matthew chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And if you need to do that tonight, we want to help you. We want to be here to make note of your repentance and your confession and pray to God with you. And we'd be honored to do that this very night. Joy has chosen a song of encouragement. And if we could be of assistance at this moment, we're going to stand and sing that. And it is at that time I'll invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.